The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. We are going to focus on words can work, which are tools to help you talk with people you um, work with or care about or your family members who may be um, struggling with um, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, depression, or other types of uh, chronic illnesses. And our guest today is author Jean Blake. She is a medical reporter and creator of Words Can Work. Um, she is an affiliated faculty member of the Division on Addictions at Harvard Medical School and a trustee at McLean Hospital, Harvard's largest psychiatric facility. It's also in, uh, she wears many hats, and one of her other hats is she's, uh, she's an executive uh, leadership communication coach and consultant, and um, we're very happy to have you with us today, Jean. And I guess we should begin about how did you decide to um, devote so much of your time and energy to this to these wonderful tools? Oh, thanks, Mary. Thanks for having me on on today. It's a pleasure to talk with you and your audience. My work as a medical and science journalist uh, had me deeply engaged in the AIDS epidemic, and as a public health crisis. I became fascinated by the many aspects of the disease and society's response to it. And I left commercial television in the early 90s after writing a book for young people about HIV and AIDS. And I had an opportunity to produce a documentary. And that's that's the reason about young people and HIV and how to what the evidence showed about the best way to teach them so they would change their behavior and not just their attitudes. And after that documentary aired, we heard from educators and youth specialists and even people in corporations who worked with, you know, employees in work-life programs that had seen the documentary on PBS stations nationally, and they wanted a shorter version of it. And so we did that featuring four young people, five young people, actually, who were living with HIV, who told their stories. And that was really the genesis of then beginning the library of Words Can Work multimedia, DVDs, trainings, booklets, to help guide communities and families and individuals and professionals in talking about these many public health challenges that kids face growing up that can throw them off track. And you mentioned earlier giving people the tools to talk with people that they might be worried about. We look at it a little bit more broadly. We look at it as a way to open up the conversation with kids when they're very young, before they get into trouble, with the hopes of helping them prevent getting into trouble. By the time you, Mary, see people in your clinic and in your treatment center, they've a lot of things have gone wrong. And our hope is that by reaching out and getting the dialogue going earlier, we can help prevent some of those troubles for families and for youth. Well, I, I think this is very timely because we are certainly in the throes of a heroin epidemic in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Maryland. I, I'm, everywhere I go, I hear people talking about this, and there's been so much miscommunication and misinformation that I think a lot of people um, feel somewhat powerless as to what to say, how to say it, what's real, what isn't. Um, and the language we use is so um, stigmatizing and pejorative as well. It's very judgmental, isn't it? I think that, and I think that parents often feel, and I know educators do as well, feel somewhat powerless to, you know, what is their role? 
And I, th- I think it goes back to the basics of being able to establish a connection with young people. Young people want that connection, and you do that by listening, by being present, by putting down your famous smartphone or your iPad, and just being present. I think we've lost a lot of that connection in our busy world. You know, I hate the word busy. I don't even use it anymore. I've eliminated from my vocabulary. We're, you know, we've, we've lost touch with each other. And I think that when we can take it back to the basics, the families that I see that are doing well are really intentional about taking that time and making sure that they're connected. And it's hard work. And I think that's one of the reasons that people don't do it. But, you know, then the price that that families pay is extraordinary, as we know. Well, and, and I don't want to blame the media because um, <clears throat> there's, there's everybody, we all have our own responsibilities, but some of the messages that we've gotten over the years, um, and, and I'm just talking in, in my own profe- profe- profession, uh, when Ronald Reagan was, was in office, the, uh, the tagline for addiction treatment was just say no. Like, you have a choice. Like, once you become dependent or addicted to um, alcohol or some other form of, of drug, you have a choice. that You can just say no. And um, the whole idea that there's the peer pressure is what drives children to use and that, that parents are almost told that they're powerless over peer pressure when the reality is that research shows that when, when parents say, you are not to drink, you are not to use smoke pot or use any other substances, and I'm going to be watching you and you're going to have limits. And, oh, by the way, you're not going to see me smoke pot, use other substances, and if you see me drink, it's only going to be socially and you're going to understand why I'm doing that. And, and it's, you know, I think we haven't given people the tools they need to be effective. Well, you know, in the production of our Words Can Work booklets that you referenced, we were really fortunate with the, the format of the booklets, and you've seen them. It's, we tell a story of a young person and a challenge they met, whether it's words can work when talking about alcohol, words can work when talking about drugs, words can work when talking about depression. And then we were able to bring in leading experts from McLean Hospital or Mass General Hospital or Harvard Medical School uh, to talk, you know, to really give some of the words and some of the research and the evidence around why those particular words and that those strategies work. And, you know, your your message of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No, you know, kids, you can't tell, you can't scare kids out of doing something and you can't push them out of doing something. In fact, that may make it actually much more appealing. And, I think that especially in the complex, challenging world that we live in, and I talk to parents groups a lot across the country, and I hear a lot of the same, and even now, and for, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, I hear a lot of the same things I heard 20 years ago. And it's, you know, I think that the, the piece that so many people are missing is, you're right, they, they feel powerless, they don't know what to do. And the mandate of don't do it doesn't, isn't enough. And parents have to, they, first of all, they have to help them understand why. And we know that from research that young people who really believe in themselves and have goals outside of themselves, have, really have a vision for what they want to accomplish in their life. And then they have an opportunity to talk about how using substances would impact those goals. That they're, that they're less likely to abuse substances. They're more likely to stay on track. They need people who believe in them, and they, have to, and they need help believing in themselves. And they need practice in how to say no, because the peer pressure that you've talked about is real. I remember about 15 years ago, I, sat, I, I gave a talk at, a, at an organization in Boston, and also a very similar one at a corporation in Minnesota. It was actually at 3M Corporation in Minnesota, where people, parents talked about some of the strategies that they used that really worked. One of them, I'll never forget this mom saying, you know what I told my daughter? I told her, if someone, you know, if you're feeling the pressure to use substances, just tell them you can't because my mother will kill me. <laughs> and she said her, her daughter had successfully used that for a very long time, and it worked, and it got her through those really dangerous, challenging years. She just needed an excuse because the pressure can be intense to fit in, to be accepted, and to experiment with something that you hear 
24-7 is going to make you feel good and going to help you escape from some of the pressures that you're feeling. So you're absolutely right. We have to, parents need to engage so that they can really listen to their kids and hear what's going on and find out what the pressures are and then help them, help them develop healthy ways of being able to cope with those. Well, and I think it's also important for parents to understand that um, not everybody has a superstar child, even though it may sound like it when you're talking to them. And that I, I, as we were talking earlier, I don't think that there's a space for parents to talk about their their child who may be struggling, whether it's with schoolwork or symptoms of depression or alcohol use or marijuana use or whatever. You know, you don't sit around and brag about your kids that are that are not doing well. And I, and I think that that's isolating as well for, for families. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it, it contributes to one of the reasons that parents deny some of what they're seeing. I mean, we all want our children to do well and to be happy. I mean, it's a basic instinct in parents. And I've had parents tell me, uh, for example, in our our Depression True Stories DVD, that I don't know. Do, do we want to listen to this clip now? Um, we could listen to the clip. We can um, go to the clip right now. Okay, good. We had all these excuses or reasons for, but this depression. We had no idea, no information, and we just missed it. We were in denial at the time. I didn't want to think of him getting off track. There were a lot of things that we wanted him to accomplish, and it was very, very hard to step back and say that wasn't going to happen. So what we hear in this clip are the parents of a young man named Michael who's living with depression. And as his dad, Chris, describes, you know, they just they missed it. They had reasons. They had excuses. He, Michael was their older, oldest child. They didn't know what to look for. Parents often tell me that they get confused. Is this typical adolescence or is there something really wrong? But his mom, Ronnie, then goes on, as you heard, and talks about how she had aspirations for, they both had aspirations for Michael. They wanted him to do well. And it wasn't part of the trajectory that he was going to get sick. It, there was no room for that. They were so brave in telling me this and, and admitting that it was hard for them to accept this information. And they therefore just didn't see it. As Dr. Brian Johnson, one of our experts in our Words Can Work booklet, describes denial as when it's too frightening to consider that a child might be doing something dangerous or might be in a dangerous situation. Parents invent reasons to ignore warning signals. And I think that that's what Ronnie and Chris were so brave in admitting that they did. I think that's common for a lot of families. Um, I think uh, because what's the alternative? Where do you go? I mean, if if your child has a high fever, we know what to do. I mean, you know, we go to Dr. Spock when they're little and there's a book that tells you what to do. Um, but we don't have that kind of support for, for parents who, who who need information on depression or bipolar disorder or alcohol abuse or, or marijuana abuse or whatever. It, it just isn't there. And I think that, that it's, it's in part because of the stigma. And you, know, you and I know that when, when there are opportunities for parents to learn about it, very often the people who show up time and time again are people who are already pretty engaged with their kids. It's, it's scary for parents to admit that something that frightening could happen to their child. But we have an obligation. We love our kids. We want things to go well. And we know that substance abuse and mental health disorders can be treated successfully. But the earlier they're identified, the better prognosis there is for someone who's living with a, a, a disorder that needs good mental health treatment. And, and I think that um, the tools that you've developed are certainly a, a, a good beginning to giving parents and educators and um, other people that are working with, with children um, how, to, how to be preventative. But also, if you're concerned, here's a way to talk to kids. Because as you said earlier, you can't scare anyone into getting help or to stop using alcohol or drugs because most people feel invincible in the very beginning. And whatever they're doing, especially if they're using substances, it's, it's 
makes them feel good. So how can mm-hmm. something that makes me feel good be bad for me? Especially right. when you bring they, it. They don't know how it can sneak, you know, addiction and trouble with substances can sneak up on them. You know, when we were producing right. our, our DVD, Alcohol True Stories, hosted by Matt Damon, I would be traveling for for business and people would say, what are you working on? And I would tell them and they'd say, oh, my kids are, you know, I let my kids drink at home. You know, then then I know where they are. I know that they're safe. And I would start to talk about some of the things that I had. You know, it's a very powerful DVD. And there, there people talk very candidly. The young people talk very candidly about what happened in, in their life because of alcohol. And I would get people's attention. And they said, well, just give me the words. And so that, that was the genesis of our first Words Can Work booklet. And we, we wrote it and then it, we published it just at the time that Alcohol True Stories, hosted by Matt Damon, was, was released. And so we, we know that parents, you know, schools give it to parents um, at, for incoming freshmen. It's distributed in a lot of different ways into parents' groups and in corporations to through, uh, you know, work-life programs. And so I, the word is, you know, the word has gotten out there, but we can never let up. You know, this is just an unrelenting challenge for us because kids are always going to look for an escape. We'll, we'll take a break right now, and then we'll come back from our break, and you, we can listen to the, um, the clip from Alcohol True Stories hosted by Matt Damon. And we'll be right back after this commercial. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You want to have the highest quality of life possible, and you want to live as healthy a life as possible, so you can do everything you want to do. But there are all kinds of myths with regard to what's right, what's healthy, and what is best. Debunk that misinformation by tuning into Shattering the Status Quo with Dr. Michael Quast. You should be able to make your own choices with your health and your life. And you should be well informed to make those choices. Tune in every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you know about Reiki? This method of healing can complement Western medicine as well as other alternative practices. Besides healing, it can have the additional effect of making you feel more positive about yourself and the world around you. By tuning into For the Love of Reiki with host Paula Vale, you'll find how Reiki can improve your health, bring balance into your life, and fill you with joy. For the Love of Reiki is broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Jean Blake, who is the uh, one of the authors of Words Can Work, which are a series of tools, that um, both DVDs and books, that are available for folks to learn how to talk to their uh, adolescents or people that they care about that may be um, using substances or drinking or maybe having symptoms of subtype of mental illness such as anxiety or depression or or bipolar disorder. And 
Um, we would like to uh, share with you a clip from Alcohol True Stories, hosted by Matt Damon, and Jean will uh, set us up for it. Okay, and you know this this DVD that we produced was there's a little bit of a history of how this came to be. We had produced a video called In Our Own Words, Teens and AIDS. And then we produced Raising Healthy Kids, Families Talk About Sexual Health, a set of tapes to help parents talk with kids about HIV and AIDS, but more broadly, just helping them talk about sexual health. And then we produced a series of videos about the the challenges that boys and girls faced growing up. And it was based on the Ad Health Study, the Adolescent Health Study, the Longitudinal uh, Study on Adolescent Health, that talked about the value of connections, that kids who are connected to a peer, a parent, or another trusted adult in their life grow up more safely. They make better choices. They make a safer transition into adolescence. And as I was interviewing young people, because that's our process, is to, is to scour the country for the right people that will really bring the stories alive on the screen. I, I think I talked, I, I talked with easily hundreds of young people, and a recurring theme came up, and it was that kids who made choices that they regretted, whether it was early sexual activity or getting involved with a group of kids that it, it wasn't right for them, they talked about the, the impact that alcohol had had on their choices. And it wasn't today, it might be drugs today, might be you know opioids today or marijuana today, but it was alcohol, and I kept hearing it over and over again. And I thought, you know, we've done this backwards. <laughs> we should have done, we should have produced a DVD about alcohol first, and that might have, you know, we might have been able to prevent because you know we are about prevention. So, so that's why we produce this video. And by the way, I just I want to mention that yes, our materials are for people who are in the moment and they have a a, a, a stress a stressful incident. Uh, they might have a child that they're particularly concerned about. But our goal is, and has been, and we've been successful at doing this, is to getting these materials in the hands of community organizations, schools, communities of faith, corporate EAP and work-life programs, and, uh, and youth organizations, and so that we can learn how to talk with kids with the hopes of preventing some of the risk-taking behaviors that we know get kids into trouble. So one of the young people in Alcohol True Stories hosted by Matt Damon is Megan, and she's one of the four young people that we profiled. Megan started using alcohol at the age of 14, and by the age of 16, she was told that she was an alcoholic. And she has a loving mom and dad, was unaware of the family history of alcoholism in her family. And she drank like so many kids do, initially because she wanted to ease her social situations. So in Alcohol True Stories, we one of the key things that we wanted to do is impart to young people, we understand the reasons that you experiment, and now we want to show you what the potential consequences are. So here's a clip from Megan. Alcohol was a way that I used to impress people. And I thought that, you know, oh, here's this 20-year-old guy. I'm going to have a beer and drink it, and he's going to think I'm cool. And that's just a whole silly mentality. But, you know, as, as time went on, it was more, oh, well, now I'm at this party. I have to drink to fit in. It changed progressively. I, you know, wanted to drink more. And I didn't exactly know why. And so fortunately, Megan, after experiencing, and this is the unfortunate consequence, she experienced a date rape and then finally was able to tell her parents and they were tremendously loving and supportive and they got her into treatment and she is doing beautifully in her recovery. And as you know, Mary, that's not always the outcome. I know, I know, but um, but we also know that uh, treatment for alcohol and other drugs of abuse is just as effective as treatment for asthma, diabetes, or hypertension. The relapse rates are 
almost the same with um, people with alcohol and drug abuse having a little bit better uh, percentage of um, compliance with treatment than, than those other diseases that I mentioned. And we do not conceptualize these illnesses as chronic illnesses. And um, when people are young and they can get into treatment early, um, you know, the prognosis is, is uh, so much better than when you've been doing this for 20 or 30 years and you've had, you know, significant changes to your brain and your mm-hmm. family structures. And so um, prevention is very, very important, but early treatment um, is really important to it if uh, prevention they didn't get no, into I'm, prevention. No, I remember speaking in... I, I gave a series of presentations in corporations um, Maybe, I guess it would have been, I don't, I don't really know exactly how many years ago, but I want to quote this study. And I, 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 one of the slides that I used was that girls first experiment with alcohol at the age of, I think the first time I gave this talk, it was 13, and boys, it's 11. And then progressively, over the years, as I gave a, some version of this talk, it dropped from 11 to, you know, 9 for boys and 11 for girls. And I think it's even, you might know, it's even become closer. But every time I would hear a gasp from the people in the room. And I think that that's the denial that we need to continue to break through, that you're, that our children who whose brains are forming and developing are... They need they need something on the other side of all of the pressure that there is to try all of these things. There's the pressure to feel better. There's the pressure to fit in. There's the pressure that they're curious. I remember asking someone, Joel, we haven't listened to his clip yet, but he was experimenting with alcohol and drugs, and by 10th grade he was addicted to prescription drug medication. And I said, you know, what were you thinking? Because... He was handed pills in the hallway at school. And he said, oh, I wasn't thinking. I I didn't think about it. I just took it. Someone said it would make me feel like I was 20 feet tall. I just decided to take it. And I think that we have to understand how young people are thinking about it. No matter how many times Nancy Reagan could just say, say, just say now, or we warn people about what can happen. In that moment, they want to feel better. They may be curious, but a lot of times the young people that I've talked to that have experimented decided to do it because they wanted to feel better. And guess what? It made them feel better temporarily. I know. And somewhere along the line, we've we've lost a part of life where um, there's pain in life and, and life isn't always about feeling better. And this immediate gratification is is not the way human beings were designed. I mean, we have a fight-flight response. We have pain for a reason. And the idea that you can take a pill and everything will be better or you'll have a few drinks and everything will be better is um, it, it's not healthy and it's not normal. And, and kids, there's so much pressure on kids to perform, to perform, to perform. And they're very rarely ever given the opportunity to just be, just go out and play, just to, you know, just sit and not have to do anything. And, and that's been replaced, unfortunately, by yet another escape, yeah. and that's called social media. I mean, if you're bored or anxious, you can log on to, you know, Facebook. Not that right. it's always safe there for kids because, you know, they can never escape sort of the pressures of, you know, waking, they, I can't tell you how many young people have told me they, they sleep with their electronic device because they have, if they wake up at night, they want to see if anything, if they're missing anything. I mean, this is the pressure our kids are facing. And there, there's got to be a, a valve somewhere that lets some of the pressure off. And if it's not done in a healthy way, and if we don't teach our kids how to do that, and that's the job, that's parents' job, then guess what? They're not going to learn, and they're going to have to cope with those emotions some, in some way, and it may not be in a healthy way. Well, and, and I think, I know, for my generation, especially for women, we were told you can have it all, but nobody told us what price you had to pay to have it all. You know, mm-hmm. like maybe four hours sleep at night because you were trying to work full-time, be the perfect homemaker and mother and whatever. And um, we can't have it all. I mean, and that's okay. I mean, it's you know, um, 
not everybody has to be, uh, you know, a superstar. I mean, people have value in and of themselves, and it's not about what you achieve. It's about who you are as a person, and I think that's got lost, too. I gave a talk about a month ago about the importance of... Just the, the, not the importance of, but the impact of our electronic devices on our ability to think and to connect, and to and it was and it was sort of directed toward some of my corporate clients around leadership development. But I, I often ask executives that I work with, how do how do you find time to think? How do you make time to think? Because it's not a matter of finding it; it's really being intentional about it, and. All of the opportunity for random conversation has just evaporated because of our dependence on our electronic devices. And the conversation after my talk turned to the use of devices by young people. And 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 I I just remember the look on so many parents' faces and, and talk about modeling. You mentioned earlier modeling this behavior. I mean, how many families do we know where their devices are just part of the I mean, if they sit down to dinner, by the way, <laughs> that their devices are part of the the deal now. They're like a knife and a fork and an iPad. <laughs> and I, all of those opportunities, even, you know, this was particularly around the workplace and helping to, having opportunities to have a, a, a conversation that can be enlightening. Sherry Turkle at MIT has done some really amazing research and writing about this, and I, I love her work. But the same exists for kids. I know that there's just the, the random conversation at the dinner table or the random conversation in the car and the random conversation anywhere. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're tuning that out now because we're, we're locked into our devices, and kids need that. Kids, where, where is it going to come? Where is the outlet? Where is the opportunity just to talk and have things bubble to the surface? And be you know have have an opportunity to get some context and perspective. I, you know I'm I'm worried about kids losing that. I know it's kind of scary when you wonder about what society going to look like in another forty years. Are we going to be so just dis- four? <laughs> Remember <laughs> when we didn't have more. email or cell phones? <laughs> I do. You're, um, you're more optimistic my life than so I am. Simpler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But the other side of this is is that what, how are we encouraging resilience and what are the things that we can do to help um, children and, and anyone become more resilient? And I don't hear us talking enough about that either. I, I, I agree with that. And uh, there, there are so many distractions now that we've lost the opportunities for that in large measure. But I know I do know families that are that are looking for those opportunities and make sure that they happen. Kids and their kids are doing really well. I mean, it can be done, and it you know it doesn't take as much as we might think. You know, kids are I think naturally resilient if they're given the space and the time and the attention to do that. So, can you give us an example, um, maybe about how words can work, like when talking about alcohol? Um, what shouldn't? What should you not say, and what should you say? Well, I mean, it depends on the situation. But I, you know, I th- I think that I would speak to that a little more broadly, Mary. I think that I would say, rather than just being didactic and saying this is this is what the deal is, I think parents need to be. I I, I want parent. I encourage parents to just be a lot more willing to ask questions and listen, and really, really listen, and then follow up. And follow up with a smart question, and uh, and then listen to the answer. Kids just need an opportunity sometimes to talk. You know, I've, I've always run across parents who say, "But my kid doesn't want to talk." And you know, there there's still a way around that. Kids love to hear stories about when you were growing up. But I, th- I think that the biggest thing that I that I encourage parents to do now is just to, just to create the opportunities for there to be, as I mentioned before, that random conversation. Because that's when, you know, honestly, that's when stuff can come up. Kids need a place to talk. And we'll be right back to... after this commercial. Oh, 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. I hope you're enjoying our show today. This is Mary Woods, and our guest is Jean Blake, who is a medical reporter and creator of Words Can Work. She is a faculty, an affiliated faculty member of the Division of Addictions at Harvard Medical School and a trustee of McLean Hospital, Harvard's largest psychiatric facility. She's also an executive leadership communications coach and consultant. So you're working at both ends of the um, spectrum here from prevention to treatment to hopefully um, helping people who have a lot of responsibility um, incorporate some of this into their own work and life as well. So um, thank you for right. doing all of that. Uh, we, we touched on it earlier, but I think, um, you know, when we think about the legalization and the decriminalization of marijuana and um, the overprescription of opiate medication, which is to a large extent led to the heroin epidemic we have right now, um, what are, what are you talking to folks about? What are you um, What are you hearing? Well, what I'm hearing is a whole lot of concern, and you know this the heroin epidemic is in in a in a in part, you know we the availability of of prescription opioids has been was addressed pretty rigorously a few years ago, and 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 heroin's so easy to get and. I read recently, and it's a very small percentage of people who who are using heroin who were former opioid um, abusers. Um, but I think that's sort of neither here nor there. We've got an epidemic of heroin use. We have an opioid epidemic on our hands in this country, and there's there there are efforts i mean our governor in massachusetts charlie baker has taken a personal interest in this i live in gloucester massachusetts and you may have heard about our police chief who has created what uh, is called the angel program it's a very innovative way of 
when an addict comes into the police department, he or she is not arrested, but a treatment bed is found for, for the person who is suffering from addiction. And to date, since May, over 200 people have gone into treatment as a result of that. And it's, it's quite remarkable. And it's, you know, I think that this, it's a small effort, and, but other communities nationally are calling and desperate and trying similar approaches. So these, these efforts are going under, you know, are underway. I, I, you know, I think that I worry that not enough is being done on the prevention end. And I'm, that's, that's always my concern because of many of the reasons that we discussed here, that there is an inability and a lack of a language to talk about it in a way that's not judgmental, that sees it as a disease. And, and th- that many parents are afraid and they feel powerless to help their kids make smart choices early on before addiction becomes uh, the central issue. I know it's... Um... It's, I, I'm scared for, for, I'm scared for everyone, but, um, you know, addiction and, um, is a brain disease and it, and it occurs in the brain. It's a primary brain disease and, but it's, it's one of the chronic illnesses that the treatment of it is often dictated by, by, uh, laws and legislature. And um, what's happening in Gloucester, I hope, can happen everywhere because um, that's really how you help people. And, you know, as long as we have laws dictating who gets into treatment and how treatment is um, provided, or if somebody even has access to treatment, we're not going to win this, you know? We're not going to win it. I mean, it, it, it just was quite remarkable that... The Gloucester Police Chief Lenny Campanello, and with support from the Mayor Safatia Romero, thank uh, you know, really took this on. Really, and it was brave. I mean, it, it there it was controversial at first, and it was it was quite brave. But he said, you know what? I mean, people are dying. We just we've got to we've got to do something. We've got to stop it. So I I'm I'm thrilled uh, that it's showing that kind of promise, and that other people are hoping to uh, to implement a similar program in their communities. It can, it can definitely save lives and it can help and it can help turn the tide where it's, you know, at its front door. I'm still our focus is still on prevention and I think that more needs to be done. I don't think enough is being done. No, and I, you know, I think part of that too is is you mentioned earlier about the the earlier that someone is is gets the help. And when we were talking about Megan, the earlier someone gets the help that they need, the better. And I think that the, the famous denial that we've been talking about is so ever-present. In our DVD, Drugs, True Stories, I wonder if we could listen to the clip of two parents. We, we identified this family that they, they became very outspoken about their son's addiction to Oxycontin, which, you know, it, it is an opioid. And I, I met with the family, and they were willing to tell their story. And I came home and thought about it. And I thought, you know, I've, and, and Joel, by the way, their son, who became addicted to, to uh, first used marijuana and alcohol, and by 10th grade was addicted to prescription drugs, um, and is doing beautifully now. But, he, you know, he very nearly lost his life. A number of his friends died from overdoses. And, and Herb and Susan, his mom and dad, lived in a house with him through his addiction 10th through 12th grade and say they just missed it. I mean, it's a small house. I've been in it. And Herb is a school superintendent, a very, very smart guy. And so I, I went back to them and I said, look, I've, I've produced material on alcohol, on, on all of these other public health issues, and I'm fascinated by the issue of denial. And would you, I, I, I think that we need to just take this on and hit it straight in the face. Are you, are you with me? And they said, absolutely. So we sat down and did an interview about, and, and was, it's the first time that I really engaged the family on t- in talking about denial. So why don't we listen to what Herb and Susan had to say about their denial when their son was in the throes of his addiction. We made every mistake that you would find in a textbook that parents typically make. But we didn't have the information 
And if we had the information, we didn't believe the information. And if we believed the information, we weren't exactly sure what to do with the information because as much as I thought I knew, I didn't know anything, quite frankly. I never believed growing up that addiction was an illness. Back in the 70s and 80s, you would hear of a drug addict and you would say, oh, that's, you know, they have nothing else to do. They're using drugs. I do believe that it's an illness. Just like cancer, you need to get the right treatment. My perception of a drug addict now is so different. It's my son. I love him. And... I'll be there always to support them. And I think, I think that they just say it so well. I mean, Susan talks about really coming to understand that addiction is an illness. But they really, and they talk more in the video, in the DVD, Drugs, True Stories, about this. And they take us a little bit deeper into what that feels like. And we can all relate to it. I mean, we can all relate. But I think that extra, in the environment that we're living in right now, we all have to be on alert because it's not just those people. It's not just those kids. It's any one of our kids. I mean, honestly, if Joel, who is a superstar athlete, the son of the school superintendent, could go down that path, any one of our kids could. Any one of them could. And we all have to have that in the front of, in the front of our minds. So how can people find the DVDs, or how can they get the booklets? Um, Thank you. I didn't even mention that, did I? Our website address is www.wordscanwork.com. And also, I, just, I thought that it might be worth mentioning that on November 12th and 13th, we're having a training engaging youth in preventing opioid addiction. And it's going to be in Boston, and they can learn about that at... Words can, I think that there's information on the website. I would hope so. They can send us an email at info at wordscanwork.com and we'll send information. But it's a two-day training. We do this about twice a year. Our last one was about alcohol, true stories. And we're, we're thrilled to be co-hosting this with another organization in Boston that does training. And uh, it's, you know, we, we welcome, we're, we're thrilled that we have sub- substance abuse prevention professionals um, public health professionals, folks from schools, and it's a, it's a dynamic two-day interactive conversation around um, opioid uh, addiction, helping to, you know, we'll, they'll learn, participants will learn strategies for engaging youth in substance abuse prevention activities and policy change and also the best practices for our DVD Drugs True Stories, which, by the way, is approved by SAMHSA's and NREP, and we're, we're pleased by that. It's um, you know, Harvard Medical School evaluated it, and it was, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a compliment to have it um, given the seal of approval by NREP. Are you still going out to in speaking engagements to talk about this, or are you doing more executive coaching now? The bulk of our, my work is executive coaching in corporations, but I... Do speaking. I still do speaking engagements when I can. Uh, I, I find it deeply, deeply satisfying, and and so I I do when I can. Um, I, I just I think this is uh, marvelous what you've done, and um, and I really want to encourage people. It's never too soon to start talking to your children about alcohol and drugs, and and. The, how do they affect them when they smoke or they drink? And they don't have to abuse them, just so they understand because they're informed consumers. When my daughter was about three, we were in the grocery store, and um, that was back when you could smoke in the grocery store. And I hadn't realized, uh, because I'm an alcohol and drug counselor, I guess I must talk about this stuff more than I think. And my daughter was in the carriage, and she looked, and there was a woman going down the aisle, and she's, she was smoking, and my daughter screamed at the top of her lungs, Mommy, that lady's doing drugs. And it was like one of these defining moments. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, what do I do? And I just smiled, and, and I said, isn't she cute? And I just, you know, kept, kept on going. But, you know, I, I didn't even realize that she had picked up all that, you know. So, so um, you know, 
be aware. How much how much alcohol do you have around your house? How many nights a week are you coming home and drinking? How often are you saying, I need a beer or I need a drink or I need whatever? Because all of those are messages you're giving your children that are so much more powerful than um, what they may be hearing from their peers because they're hearing those early in their life. That's absolutely right. And I, I think, you know, we model behavior to our children 24-7, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, whether we're aware of it. And also, I'd like to add one thing, is that not only talk with children about the reasons to not do drugs, but the benefits of, of waiting till you're 21 to drink alcohol, the benefits of avoiding other drugs, and the importance, by the way, of looking out for their friends. Uh, this is a message that I really wanted to get out there. Joel, Joel's life was probably saved because his best friend had the courage to go to his mother and to Joel's mother and dad and say, this is what I think is going on. And it really started the ball rolling. Michael, who had depression, his best friend went to his mom and dad and went to his own mom and dad, who then in turn called the parents. Megan finally got help because a parent said, I understand that your daughter's drinking. And in in each one of these cases, kids really stepped up and told an adult that they trusted. That takes courage. Kids need to be told it's the right thing to do. Joel's sister didn't speak up. She's in our DVD, Drugs True Stories. You can see it in her face. Her brother's okay. He's in recovery. He's doing well. She's tortured by the fact that she didn't speak up. We need to help kids know what the right thing is to do and how to do it. And help parents understand that um, they didn't fail as a parent because their son or daughter has developed a, uh, a problem with alcohol or other substances or depression. Um, Absolutely. It's a biological Absolutely. You know, parents have a really hard job. They have a really hard job, and we're all stretched then. And being a parent takes 24-7 vigilance and and being proactive. And, you know, we know that our kids don't always want to hear those messages. (laughs) They'll often push us away. But as you pointed out, Mary, they're still listening, and they want to be loved, and they know that when you demonstrate within the family that there are these are the rules and this is the way it's going to go because I love you and I worry about you. That's a message they'll carry with them into the rest of their life. And I think that's a great note to end our show. Thank you, Jean, so much for being um, our guest today and thank you for the work that you're doing. It was my great pleasure. Thanks for having me and thank you for the work you're doing to help families and people who are struggling with uh, substance abuse. Well, um, we're both blessed, I guess, to be able to do what we love. So have a great week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion, one hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.